Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Kim, CEO of Notify, a web theory communication infrastructure platform that's raised over $12 million in funding. Paul, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. This is great. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So my background is mostly in Web2. Kind of built my career there in a lot of cloud infrastructure services. I uh, worked for companies, you know, fortunately in the space of like Amazon, you know, Microsoft and Oracle and just had a little intuition about like figuring out what we wanted to work on next and magically got into the Web3 space and saw a tremendous amount of opportunity in the space to kind of, you know, push the needle, but also like bring a lot of things of primitives that were missing. And we wanted to be kind of the people that put our hands up for the picks and shovels kind of area and, you know, found ourselves in a startup. This is about 10 months ago. You know, we were fortunate to find a pretty good, you know, just team assembling it, but also getting a lot of support from the venture side of things. And all of a sudden, we went from two people to about 16 people in about 10 months. So it's been a crazy ride. Wow. And yeah, especially with everything going on in the industry today or the last couple of weeks, it must be especially crazy. Yeah, I think, you know, no one really expected this to happen in this order. You know, we always had an intuition that like something would probably like, you know, come down from the highest points. But this has been interesting, I would say six months. I think the the first kind of like domino was like the the Terra Luna stuff crashing. And then now we're in this state of we don't know what's going to happen next. So I think we're getting a little used to it, though, right? Like, people are shocked. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you know, what's next, right? Yeah, for sure. It definitely makes for uh, you know, an interesting time just to be in uh, in tech. I you know try to avoid news typically, but the last two weeks I find myself just constantly checking Twitter to see what the latest update is. So been a major distraction, I would say for me. How about you? Yeah, I think I try to stay away from Twitter. <laughs> it's been one of my things that when coming into the space, especially, and and one of the reasons why we're in here in the first place is that we wanted to like get away from Twitter being like the de facto communication infrastructure, right? For for a lot of Web three folks, and so like you know personally for me, maybe I'm just too old to use Twitter, but I can continuously scroll and save date and just focus on these like current events as much as possible. So the funny thing is like a lot of my news now comes from like my friends in the space that happens to just DM me. So I wake up to like a lot of DMs on Telegram that says like, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. But it's never really going to Twitter and and scrolling that content itself. So you have like a little personalized newsletter that gets delivered directly to your Telegram. No, I think I think in general, people (laughs) in the space are pretty like gossipy, right? So, uh, (laughs) you know, so I I think it's kind of like a part part for the course where people just like message you and give you these like crazy insights or this something that just broke on Coindesk or something. So it's been interesting to see how the community has like formed in this like second layer to abstract news, but also like real news, right? Because like some people like message you like the, you know, the content that no one really wants to share, right? So... Yeah, it's been interesting to see the community kind of being evolved around all this kind of crazy news. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Well, let's let's switch gears a bit here and talk about, you know, just a few questions to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and, and as a leader. So is there a CEO or a team that you're really studying the most right now? And if so, you know, what are you studying them for? You know, what are you learning from them? That's a pretty interesting question, because I think 
I've been lucky to kind of work with a lot of, you know, great leaders, like work for Andy Jassy and work for Clay Majoric. He's the guy that basically built out OCI. I think Fortunately, we just had a good exposure to a lot of these leaders and, and their working styles, but also their ability to kind of take from something from zero to one to one to 1000, right? So those are the those leaders that I kind of look to and, and kind of figure out how to replicate culture, but also like look at from a business perspective of growing the pie in a sense, right? So that's what I've been kind of looking into most of these times, just like reflecting on my experiences working with these, you know, great industry leaders. But, you know, there's other teams that you kind of keep focus on. You know, I think the team at like Alchemy have done a great thing. You know, I think folks in consensus have done, you know, tremendous amount of work as well. So I think in general, it's an amalgam of different leaders and different working styles that I think you can build and take great things from and manifest your own style. Totally. Yeah, I think it'd be a, you know, a major error just to pick one person and say, I'm going to copy everything they do. And then that becomes your, yeah, your go to market plan. So yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Like, you can't just pick one person, like, say, like, I don't know, a lot of my founder friends, like, you know, like worship Elon, right? And it's like, look, different businesses, different styles, different cultures, different teams, right? And also, like, the amount of money that, you know, maybe your team has raised and what they have in the bank is, is quite different, right? So everything's very unique. And, and it's just never like, you know, one person to always idolize on. It's about, you know, taking these things and trying to figure out how it relates to your company, your project, your team itself, right? You know, something another guest said the other day that I liked a lot is they call it their like personal board of directors or imaginary board of directors. So they chose, you know, like the eight people they admire the most in the world, put them on their imaginary board of directors, and then you kind of pull insights and knowledge from them together in their mind to try to like make informed decisions based on what they would say and do, which I thought was a pretty, a pretty fun and interesting approach. Oh, that's pretty accurate. I do that all the time. I always do like, Oh, what would Jazzy do? Or what would Bezos do or something, right? <laughs> it's like those questions like you always kind of do. You know, I do it myself to like not my imaginary board or whatever you want to call it. But I know that for a fact, like my team also does it on my behalf as well, right? So they always like think about like, okay, what would Paul say, right? In this sense. So I think that kind of reflection point happens all around. And uh, it's actually kind of cool to see that being like replicated. And it also like in a weird way, you know, it, it is kind of, it feels weird for me to have my team also echo that perspective. But, you know, it is pretty accurate in terms of like them trying to like figure out what I would ask for or what I would do next is like something that saves a lot of time and efficiency, right? It's like those bracelets people used to wear, right? Like, what would Jesus do? What would Paul yeah, do? You know, I was going to say that. I was going to say that, but I didn't know what kind of podcast this was. So, <laughs> yeah, you're good to go. <laughs> and what was it like, you know, to zoom in on on working for Andy Jassy? Like, what was that like? And, you know, what is he like? Because, you know, just from my end, I've really admired, you know, the challenge that he took on, on on taking over Amazon. Like, I can't imagine that burden and that pressure. And it seems like he's delivering so far. So what was that like working for him? Any insights or details or stories that yeah, you can share? Yeah, so, I mean, I joined AWS at like 2016, 2015, when I think it was like, so like under 1500 people, 1500 people, and I think 15 billion in revenue, which was insane. Right. And it was still pretty like, you know, the product team and this S team is pretty small. Right. So we were able to get a lot of insights in terms of how their internal operations were working and working with Jazzy was like, it was intense. You know, every week you would have something called a chop. Right. And you would go up to this chopping block and you would propose pitch your project or your one pager. Right. And these are documents like I don't know, you probably heard of these things called PRFAQs. You know, they take like months to put together. Right. And in those meetings, him and basically all the senior executives of AWS would basically read your document for like 30 minutes, 
right? And then at the end, they would rapid fire questions at you. You're in the hot seat and you have to answer all these questions, right? And these questions are like very, very like strong, like terrorizing questions, right? They're very highly intellectual. They know exactly, like even if they have no idea about the technology that you're working on, they know how to break it, right? Or how to break basically your your business plan or your go-to-market. And you have to basically publicly defend this across like, you know, the room has like 30, 40 people, right? So I think I'm not surprised at all about Andy's like ability to kind of scale out and run this organization and the bigger mother company. But I think they've been very prescriptive about this from day one. It's a very Amazonian style to be this dive deep and really around like having all the answers, like at least you know, collected, right? And I think as they're kind of growing to this next phase, like when I joined Amazon, I think it was like, there was like, yeah, like under 60,000 people. And I have no idea what the number is now. It's probably like four or five times that. But, you know, I think the culture has stayed within the same realms and mm-hmm. the expectation and the bar of excellence has increased over time, right? So I think just working with that leadership and that culture definitely leaves a high impression on you. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, I went on to do thereafter, I bring a lot of that element to a lot of the companies and cultures that I build as well. I've done it before at like a company called Grab, where, you know, was taking a lot of ownership around building the PM culture and took a lot of stuff from Amazon. I did it also at Circle too. And I think even in my own company, you know, we have a lot of these elements that, you know, at the end of the day are like core Amazonian. I think it's really cool that these things like really start to permeate through the rest of the organization, rest of the culture, just because some of the stuff they've been able to qualify, you know, does make sense, right? And it scales. So I think that's kind of the beauty of working in kind of the industry for a little bit is that you could take and pick the pieces of, of stuff that works really well and apply it to different kind of landscapes. You know, I've had probably four, five former Amazon employees who have you know, gone on to start companies now on the show. And all of them essentially say the same thing, you know, similar things around, you know, customer centricity and Amazon's obsession over the customer and how, you know, that core belief was distilled in, or you know, instilled into their organization as well. Is that the same for you? Is that one of those, you know, core pillars of Amazon that you've embraced in your company? Yeah, absolutely. I think customer obsession is one of our like top five LPs that we have in our own company. Other ones are like things like bias for action, frugality. You know, we basically took, it's actually pretty funny. We stole all the leadership principles from Amazon and actually implemented it in our company. And with the caveat, one thing was, was that these are our LPs until we find something better, right? But until then, here's what we should kind of come to an agreement on. And like, let's try to build our culture around these things because they're pretty good. Right. And I think for a long time when I was in like, you know, different companies or different startups, you know, I never really knew, like I always embodied a lot of the leadership principles, but never really put them to kind of word. And when I got into Amazon, I was like, oh, wow, this is like 80% of the stuff that I identify as, you know, as an individual. And, you know, these are my top principles as well. It's amazing when, you know, a company advocates for it, but also truly executes and believes in it. And the reason why, you know, we did this at our company recently is because I think as companies grow and there's different like ownership around like product design, engineering, it's very difficult to scale out having constructive conversations, right? Opinions, sharing opinions, and uh, more importantly, like you know, even things around disagreeing and committing. Because we're like such a small company and, you know, in crypto and Web3, we execute so rapidly. Uh, you can't have these arguments and you need to be able to set it to bed and, you know, just drive, execute, and then iterate over time. And I think the best way to have these conversations is to come back to the core company, like leadership principles, like mm-hmm. 
you know, if you're going to argue against, you know, have your opinion, what is it basically reflecting? Is it customer obsession, right? Or mm-hmm. is it just a, a frugality concept, right? We can't work on this because it's going to take eight weeks of engineering. And by the way, like, you know, this doesn't actually solve the customer pain point. And nobody from our customer base is asking for this feature, right? So I think when you bring it back to your core principles, you can actually have these like, actual conversations that go somewhere. And it's not just my opinion versus your opinion and my ego versus your ego, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what keeps it pretty, you know, streamlined. Otherwise, like you get into these nasty fights that get people kind of riled up, right? It's about like, Mm -hmm. no, I'm wrong, you're wrong, or I'm right. And it's not about that, right? It's about like, Mm -hmm. what is our reflection as a company? And how do we best execute against that while keeping it pretty focused on the horizon, right? Which is, what do our customers want? Right. And I think that kind of is is relatively like the best lessons that I've learned by Amazon. Nice. I love that. Well, let's talk about what your customers want. So can you give us the high level origin story behind the company? And then you know, what are what are companies paying you to solve? What is that pain point and what is that problem? Yeah. So, you know, we started this journey because when I was onboarding into crypto, you know, I saw that there is a couple of things that were very similar to the Web2 cloud stack of things. Right. So essentially, like, you know, basic infrastructure was there. Blockchain was there. Data storage network, um, all these like primitives or core services were already there. And then, you know, what was missing was, you know, this customer experience layer. Right. You can kind of see it for a lot of the Web3 side of things, which is like, you know, everything is dark mode. Everything is kind of tailored to like DGENs. And uh, there's some basic things that just don't happen to be there, which is one was like notifications and alerts. We thought that was kind of interesting because it seemed like a lot of the builders who came into Web3 are familiar with this as a foundation, but just didn't have the time, reason or rationale to do it. So it made the user journey and user adoption and kind of like the whole like experience a little broken. Right. So the best equation, like the best kind of reference I have is like, you know, if you look at your wallet and you think of that as your kind of like your bank account, why don't you get transaction alerts when things go in and out? Right. Those are the basic things that, you know, you would expect a bank would be able to send you when transactions happen or reports happen. But it was missing. Right. So we took that idea and we basically had a theory that if we assume that the next 100 million to a billion users are going to come into Web3 in the next, you know, three to five years or 10 years, right? What is the user experience that we want to optimize for, right? And we saw that Twitter and Discord is the gateway for onboarding today. We don't think it's going to scale out to the rest of the general population. But what does the general population require and want? And that's basically the same primitives that they have in today's world that they get everywhere, which is basically either an in-app push message or a SMS notification, email message. All these things were basically missing. So we thought that, hey, why don't we do something super simple, right? Let's start out with the fact of just if you're part of a DAO and there's a proposal, how do you get that just a simple text message to go and vote for that or a reminder to vote? Right. Or even like for like transactions on NFT marketplaces, why can't you get a purchase or a bid or auction alert when you're trying to purchase something on this Web3 platform? So we started really from there and we kind of grew into this other category of DeFi for like liquidations. Like if you're about to get margin gold, how do you know when you're getting close to your liquidation price and how can you get notified to basically take an action for that? So, you know, we had this thesis that people would want convenience maybe today or maybe tomorrow and ultimately would want an experience that would be optimized for where they are today and not have to adopt another platform, 
right? Like bring me the messages to where I am today. Don't make me go create like a Discord account or a server or even, you know, join crypto Twitter. So we tested that thesis and we actually launched with a couple different, you know, partners on Solana. And we found that there was an overwhelming majority of interest in people getting notifications, you know, just to their email, right? Today, we do about like 60% of our messages are through email. The other like 25% is SMS. And the other one that's growing is Telegram. So when you see this from a macro perspective, I think folks are, you know, totally interested in getting these like communication, you know, rails set up, right? And I think they want it because they want to stay involved with Web3, but they don't want to be in front of their computer on their browser 24 by 7. So we had that idea back in like, you know, like February. We did our first integration in April. And to date, we have about 25 plus integrations across three layer ones. So we see a lot of demand for that specific technology, specific, you know, tools for builders, because I think what everyone's starting to focus on now is how do we make the user journey and user experience better? Right? How do we basically engage our customers? How do we, you know, re-engage them? And how do we make sure that we're part of this community outside of just a Twitter space or a Discord server? That makes a lot of sense. And can you talk me through what it looks like just in terms of the go-to-market motion? Are you targeting developers and then they're bringing it into the enterprise? Or what does that look like for you? Yeah, so it's been kind of a little bit of both experimentation. So we've been going to a lot of hacker houses, working with developers on the ground, trying to understand what their pain points are and uh, providing our technology basically, you know, for free to see, you know, what they can build on top of it, right? So talking to a lot of developers, getting their feedback is is quite important. And they bring it back to out of the projects that they're working on or projects they're consulting on. And for us, we wanted to do this very much early to, you know, make sure our platform and and our you know, product definition was strong, right? We started building pretty early with a lot of scrappy iterations. And as we got more feedback, we added more to our product platform. And now I guess we're collected enough to now have these conversations with bigger projects or bigger enterprises in the Web3 space. You know, we see ourselves as kind of like one of the platforms that you know, provide a very much enterprise-grade kind of solution for projects that want to, you know, provide these services at scale and with, you know, the service reliability as well as like SLAs that we want to adhere to. And I think that's a little bit different from kind of the Web3 experience today. But, you know, if you think about it from like the enterprise perspective or the, you know, these large projects in crypto, you know, they're a business, right? And they want to run it as a business. And for every partner or integration, technology integration they do, they also want to make sure that they get the best, not value, but basically best service right? You're predicating a lot of your company or project success on working with different third party, you know, projects out there, you want to make sure that they're going to be around next year, right? For example, like, you know, even in the last week, we don't know what the extent of the, the damage is from the FTX side of things. We don't know how many projects have put, you know, their treasury in FTX. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the projects may not exist uh, in a couple more months when they run out of funds. So, you know, when a lot of projects work together and they integrate together, like you want to make sure that technology and that service is going to be there for the long haul, right? It's no different from what Web2 companies do as well. They do their due diligence, right? They figure out, is this technology worth it? You know, can they provide the service quality and can we rely on them, right? And I always say this in my company too, is that like when people sign a contract or they do a, a partnership with a company in Web2, the money that they get, it's not because of the services in a sense of like me providing you notifications. No, it's about the support, 
right, that I give you and the ability for me to jump on a call if something breaks and to help fix it with you, right? Uh, you pay for the support contract. You don't pay for the actual product in a sense. And then this is what a lot of enterprise companies really like see, you know, how they like pick and choose their technology partners. It's about their ability to be there when things break, right? And resolve things. Because that's, that's something like I think a lot of people like misinterpret is that there's going to be a lot of iterations and the same versions of the same product in the market, right? And it's really about like the services and the experiences that you provide on top of that and the support structure than just the core underlying product. And a lot of that, you know, is similar to the non-crypto world, right? With the like open core business model that GitLab has and, and similar companies. Is that correct? Where it's that you can use the tool if you want to, but what you're really paying for is those add-on support services. Is yeah. that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how the open source enterprises have been able to find good product market fit. They make their money on customization and support contracts, right? You know, I think it's like adoption begets, you know, more sophisticated implementations and those sophisticated implementations will always want resources and support to, you know, substantiate their integration in the long run. Makes sense. And when it comes to, you know, definitions here, so you know, it's pretty clear, or generally clear, I think, in non-crypto world, you know, what an SMB mid-market enterprise organization is, you know, typically just based on like employee count. When it comes to like an enterprise account or enterprise customer for you, how do you define that in this space? What is that based on? Um, I think there's a couple of factors here. One is like, does this project have PMF? right? Like substantial PMF, which means users are using the product, but also paying for that product. You know, do they have a business model that, you know, has revenue and profitability baked into it? There's not a whole bunch in the space, but I think there's enough that, you know, there's justification that, hey, they're looking for a more sophisticated level of product as well from a lot of their technology partners. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the base way of kind of how we, we approach it. There's always going to be like a growing Web3 native kind of tier, right? Actually, if you take a step back, there's a couple things, right? There's there's ones that were born in Web3, like, you know, the big companies that are out there, like, say, Sushi is a great example. Uniswap is a great example. You know, those are like established products. Ave, Compound, those are established products that have, you know, customers, product market fit, have a profitability or a road to profit. And then you have like things that are crossing over from web to, you know, transitioning over. And I think those are kind of how we lump in what we call enterprise grade, right? Like Nike coming into NFT markets, Starbucks as well. These are all like tier one, you know, you know enterprise customers who are dipping their toes into Web3. Right? And then the other sector that we have is basically, you know, what we colloquially say like kind of the self-service market, uh, new projects that have just started, still trying to find their PMF, still trying to find their community. And we have different, I guess, approaches of how we support each of those different segments. And when it comes to, you know, trying to determine your your TAM or total addressable market, like how do you even begin to do that, you know, given the space is so early and you know, have you made any estimations to try to guess, you know, what that TAM looks like? Yeah, no, we've been we've done several exercises of this and they're all kind of like bullshit, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the thing is like a lot of VCs ask this and sometimes I just ask them like, do you just want me to lie? Because I don't know, right? And I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't know because it's such a like a, a nascent like kind of a space right now. But our idea... And our belief is that eventually mass adoption is around the corner, right? And if that happens, we'll see an exponential curve of builders coming in and applications coming in to increase kind of the market itself. And that's kind of what I what I say. Like we can do like some sort of historical analysis on like the number of products that are out there in the last like three to five years, and then just show a linear path to kind of like what that looks like over the next five. 
right? But you can't like predict things like in the market like today in the last week to happen, right? So it's weird. Like people ask for sometimes like three years of, of like runway or, or like not runway, but projections. And it's very difficult because I think in crypto itself, every three weeks, things change, right? And interestingly enough, like people forget Terra six months ago was like $100, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like the ability for us to try to predict beyond like two quarters is insane. Right. So I always like kind of like bring everyone back down to like, here's what we have today. Right. And you and I are both here because we believe there's a future for this. Right. What that future means from a quantifiable perspective, it's hard to say. Right. But we believe that there's going to be mass user adoption and we're here early because of that opportunity. Makes sense. And, and I love that. Now, let's talk a bit about market categories. So on my end, I'm personally fascinated with the idea of category creation. That's kind of you know the theme behind the podcast. And I talk with a lot of founders, most of them you know non-crypto, and I ask them about category creation. And a lot of them say they're creating a new category, but the reality is they're not. You know, they're just, you know, making oh, a yeah. better... I'm definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> so my question <laughs> to you, um, and you know, I think it's you are in a unique position because in the crypto space, you know, because the ecosystem, you know, lacks a lot of these purpose-built tools, it seems to me like that's you know amazing blue water or blue ocean to go out and really build purpose-built categories for you know these tools. So what are your thoughts on category creation? I think for us, I was very, very upfront, at least like you know, since day one of what we're providing, we're providing tools for web three builders to connect with web to users, right? Where they intend and prefer. I think we've been very, very clear about that because I think, you know, very pragmatic approach. You know, we're not here to build a new category of experiences because frankly, that's hard, right? It's hard and maybe like overkill, right? I don't think the industry is quite ready for that. And I think for the time being, like there's a, there's a huge pain in the market today from the user side and the builder side. We're here to be very pinpoint about that and solve that first and foremost. Right. So our thesis and, and kind of like our strategy has always been, hey, solve the problems for today, right? And prepare for the future. Right. So we've thought about this many times uh, with different conversations with different investors, different, you know, people inside the company as well. And, you know, we think that ultimately, if we're not optimizing the user experience mm -hmm. that makes it easier for people to adopt Web3, then we're doing something that makes it more complicated. And that complication doesn't always yield success for not just us, but also for the entire industry. So, you know, the reason why we're here in our kind of ethos is that, you know, we wanted to make it easier for people to adopt Web3. We wanted to be able to bring our mothers or our sisters or, you know, our cousins along the journey. And they have a very seamless onboarding experience, right? Nothing should be different in a sense, right? It should be as easy as abstracting what, you know, blockchain is from the from the user experience. And that's that's the main reason why we don't believe in like building a new category. You know, ultimately we believe that, you know, one day people will be using Web3 and they don't know it. They should never care about what, you know, Aptos is or Polygon or Ethereum. Like they shouldn't care about that. This is, this is the same kind of like conviction I give to everybody is that like pick your favorite like app today, right? Like, do you know where that's being run on, hosted on? Do you know what the internal servers look like, right? Do you know what technology is using? And the answer is going to be no, absolutely not, right? And they shouldn't care, right? Technology is like a means to an end, right? If done elegantly and well, like no one should know, right? And that's kind of like the same like perspective that we have coming into this space is that if we're able to do our jobs well, 
we were able to provide the best Web2 user experience, right, for these Web3 projects. And nobody knows that we're the ones powering that. And I think that layer of like abstraction needs to be more, I think, embodied than some of the principles that we're pushing out from a community perspective today. We talk about ultimate composability, but you know, I believe that composability sucks if you, you focus on like just UI. Like composable UI is like a is a nightmare, both from like a, a user experience, but also from the builder experience, right? I was just having this conversation with a gaming company about like NFTs that were fungible from one game to another. And uh, the funny thing is like, they're like, my creative directors would never go for this. Like they would never allow for someone else's art to be like meshing with their metaverse, right? So, you know, composability from a user experience, you know, from a UI perspective may not be working long-term. And that's kind of the way, you know, we approach things. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that I see the crypto community, you know, get wrong when it comes to trying to get mainstream adoption is they talk about crypto, which, you know, like you said, like the mainstream consumer, like my mom doesn't give a shit about crypto or the technology behind it. But if you say, hey, this is, you know, a better way or a faster way to send money to, you know, my sister who's in college, like that makes sense in the same way that, you know, I love Venmo and I like using Venmo whenever I can instead of a bank transfer because it's faster, it's easier. I don't know how Venmo does it. I don't care how they do it. All I know right. is it's you know, better than ACH. Yes. It's supposed to be magical, right? And what is magical, I think that's when you get user adoption, right? And this is the same kind of like, if you look at Apple Pay, right? Apple Pay was interesting because they made it seem magical, right? It's like tap to pay. But the funny thing is like, that was never really new. Every single credit card had like a freaking chip, right? <laughs> In everywhere else outside of the US, like tap to pay was like a thing. <laughs> Yeah, But when Apple came in, they're like, whoa, we innovated this, we built this new experience, you know, and then they rolled it out. People are like marveled at it because it abstracts it away. It, it makes it seem like you're not even paying for things. It just means it just makes it seem like you're just, you know, playing a game in a sense. Right. And I think that's like the way to mass market, but mass adopt people into something. And I think that's like the ownership of us, like our like the builders here today. We should be optimizing to make it so simple. Even like to take the most complicated thing in the world to simplify the user experience so that they don't even know and they don't care. And I think that's where you see, you know, the pivotal moment happening in crypto, right? Is when you start to do that, right? You solve for things that people didn't know that they wanted a solution for, right? And you kind of put them on their way. And like, so there's a company called Crossmint. I don't know if you heard of Crossmint, but they make it easy for anybody to basically purchase an NFT. You don't have to get a wallet. You don't have to get like a MetaMask or Phantom. You don't have to on-chain transfer yourself money to go purchase this thing. You just basically take your bank account or your credit card, you buy the NFT that you want, and it's there. That is so simple. And they're killing it right now because they realize that their user, you know, category or segment are Web2 users, right? It isn't the Web3 DGENs. And the interesting thing is like, that's a way higher addressable market than the current users today in Web3. And this is something I say all the time is that I'm not here to build better tools for DGENs. That's a small addressable market. And that market is going to get smaller and smaller as more users come in. Mm -hmm. We're here to go build the tools to unlock the next billion users, right? That's the only way this is going to work. So I think it's always an interesting like, you know, argument between the existing customers that are like, here today and the customers that you hypothesize are going to come in in the next future. Right. And it all goes back to customer obsession. This is like what we usually have a you know big argument in internally about is that, you know, we're fighting for the customer obsession. And it, the question is like, 
the customer exceptions reflect on the existing users today or the existing users that have not yet to come in the next future or so, right? And that's always like what we argue about in, in Notify. And is that hard sometimes? Or was it ever difficult to make that decision? Because it seems like your view here is, you know, Contrary to how a lot of other companies in the crypto ecosystem operate, where, like you said, I, I see the dark mode websites, you know, it's, it's clearly not marketing to the enterprise or, you know, a, a decision maker at a big company. But it seems like you've taken a very, very different approach. Was that hard to make that call? Like, do you sacrifice short term user adoption and maybe short term revenue by not focusing on the DGENs? Or is that an easy decision for you to make? No, absolutely. It is a very difficult decision, right? I think if you look at our brand and our position and kind of like our go to market in the past, you know, six months that we've been kind of active, it was a hard decision to make because we realized that there is going to be a short term pushback, right? Mm-hmm. And we've experienced that a lot too is that even like when we started, we were actually, we were on the first multi chain like intentional multi chain or chain agnostic projects out there because we launched on Solana and Terra. Right. And I think that was like not super well received in the communities because back in like, you know, February, you know, (laughs) everyone was more like, hey, you need to pick one. You can't pick them all. Right. But, you know, we were very always intentional in saying, listen, you know, we want to be chain agnostic because notifications and messaging should be chain agnostic. Right. We should be going to where your users are. And secondly, like we also like advocated pretty heavily on like Web2 communication. We were the ones saying, People want text messages or emails. They don't want an on-chain message to a wallet that they will never be able to see, right? They don't want another NFT message, right? Mm-hmm. So we took a very different approach at it. We took a very pragmatic approach, right? And this is basically from our experience, from you know building Web two companies and in working in these like enterprise companies as well, is that you know I think what we had a thought on is that when Web two starts to transition heavily into Web three. All the tools and all the companies who are familiar with these things will be asking for the same stuff, right? And it is going to be something that is dark mode or degen tool specific, right? Because they're not them. And so like, yeah, we took a pretty big stand on this early on. And you can kind of see it pervasively in our UI and our UX that, you know, we take a very happy path middle ground where we split the roads between Web 2 and 3. And we call ourselves a Web 2.5 company because we're the bridge that kind of makes things work back and forth, even from a branding perspective. So it was very tough. But I think a lot of people now, especially in the last couple of weeks and the last couple of months, have understood why and the pragmatic reasons of why we chose this angle, because now it's no longer taboo to be multi-chain, which is really interesting. And it's, it's almost like, I think people fed into their own ethos, these maximalist concepts. And now, you know, post-terror collapse, people are like, okay, maybe maybe we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket, right? Because I think now people are starting to realize like, oh, we're actually here to build a business, right? This isn't just like a project to have fun with, but like a lot of the builders here who raise insane amounts of capital, right? Now the pressure is on to be like, great, this is an investment. This is a business investment, right? Let's go operate and make it into like an actual corporation. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff is being kind of like refreshed on. And a lot of folks have looked at us and like are pretty much saying like, hey, great, like you you guys have led the charge here. And now it's like conventionally okay to also be on the same page. So it's been it's been kind of a journey, but we were glad that, you know, we made this decision very, very early on. 
Yeah, and, it's, and it sounds like a smart position to take. And you know, even in the pre-interview, you uh, I was you know a bit caught off guard when you said, "Oh no, it's you know B two B enterprise." I don't speak with any companies in the crypto space that even think you know at that level of B two B enterprise. They'll just say, "Oh yeah, it's for you know developers, and we're empowering developers." But they don't you know think about kind of the business model or like, the business case on top of that, and what happens after you get developers to use the tool. So it's a really refreshing and I think a really smart approach that you're taking here. Yeah, I mean, like, it's pretty funny because it's like, you know, developers are great, but then what's the use of developers if no one's really like, you know, paying for your thing or like you have PMF, right? And that's the kind of like the thing I always challenge a lot of founders is that, you know, during this time, this part, like this macro, like, do we really have PMF? Um, Especially when things get tough. And I think that's the angle that we kind of look into is that, you know, having developers is, is great, but if they're not building things that, you know, scale or bring more users on or, you know, have a business, then, you know, what are you really building other than open source software, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe people use, but don't want to ever pay for. Makes sense. And what's the business model behind Notify? How do you actually, you know, make money and, and build this into a business? Yeah, so we call ourselves kind of the Twilio Web3. Mm-hmm. Uh, we follow the same principles as well. I think eventually, like all businesses, Web3 businesses want to be able to message, engage, re-engage their customer audience. And they want to reach the users where they are, right? It's almost the same kind of thing. Like if you're an NFT project, are you going to really put your entire business dependency on just Twitter and Discord? Right. You want better ways to reach your target audience, to re-engage your community, to have these communication moments and build relationships. So that's what we really provide tools for, is to help build and bridge those relationships together. So we charge based off of message volume. You know, all the tools that we provide, we do it through like a SaaS billing perspective. And is that build in crypto or is that build in you know, just normal payments? We do both, actually. I think that's kind of the cool part, too, is being Web3 native. Like the Web3 side of us is that we actually take tokens as, as payments. And that's kind of like difficult to do. You know, like people ask me all this time, like, you know, what's stopping Web2 companies to, you know, like rebuilding what you did in Web3? And, uh, you know, it's actually quite regulated and concerning for like Fortune 500 companies or public companies to bridge into this gap. Right. Um, actually, you see the opposite kind of momentum was that, you know, a lot of these communication platforms and tools are actually banning crypto you know, companies from using their tools. Mm-hmm. Like MailChimp a couple of months ago basically kicked out every single crypto user and they said, we don't want you to leverage our tools to communicate these like, you know, potentially scam or, or uh, you know, false advertising things. So a lot of, <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of Web2, like Web2 companies don't want to associate themselves with crypto. It's kind of, why would you jeopardize your core business? right? To support a small fraction of opportunity, right? The risk is too high for that. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And last question here, since I know we're up on time, if you zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for the company? Yeah, that's typically what I ask. I know in in this Web3 world, it's different. So (laughs) feel free to narrow that down to the three-week vision or the three-month vision. Well, the good thing is that we just raised a round. So we're definitely here for three years plus. (laughs) No, I mean, I I think generally, like where we see the three-year kind of like maturity standpoint for messaging is that like, You know, we do see that like a lot of the Web 2 foundations that you're familiar with will be there in Web 3, right? We hope that like the concept of decentralized applications like dApps, 
right? Like, I hate this terminology because I think, you know, it's still an application layer, right? Run off a decentralized infrastructure, right? But usually when people call it dApps, like you get away with like not having a great UI or user experience, right? Yeah. It's like almost like we give you the crappiest experience because it's a dApp and we can stick with it. So I think in the next three years for us and for the industry, like we're going to go back to application experiences that, you know, like tremendously push the bar of quality. There's no reason why you can't have like, I don't know, like the best user experience for a decentralized app, right? That's akin to a Web2 experience. I think a lot of that stuff will come in and messaging and notifications and all these like communication rails will be basically foundational again, right? Like we're going to go back and say, hey, we forgot this stuff when we cross over to Web3. Let's go bring it back so we can bring the users alongside with us. So our journey is to make sure that it happens. Our ambition is to make sure that you know, these builders have access to all the things they used to have in Web2, right? And they can match and basically create a, a parity, an experience that rivals Web2, if not better. So mm-hmm. everything that we're working on today is to make sure that really like becomes, you know, front and center. One of the big things that we're also doing is expanding across different L1s. At to date, we have about like seven L1s that we support today. We hope to double or triple that by next year. There's a lot of like interest in different layer twos coming out as well. So all these like, I guess the momentum is that, you know, I think everyone is expanding. Everyone's, you know, seeing as multi-chain or chain agnostic. So we want to be first and foremost, a pillar that anyone can leverage regardless of any kind of a layer one dependency. You know, again, your users shouldn't care and they should only care. A notification should be basically a prime category that shouldn't be predicated by L1. So that's kind of like a long three-year version. Nice. I love that. And I can see why investors and your team are probably very excited about that that vision. Unfortunately, we are up on time or we're over time. So we're going to have to wrap here. But before we end, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? I guess it's our Twitter. Our Twitter is notify at Notify Network. And uh, my personal Twitter is one uh, Paul Kim. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat, share your insights and share this vision. This is super exciting and look forward to watching here as you execute on it. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. No problem. Take care.